Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I like about GCA? Lots of stuff. <laughs> Lots of stuff. I mean, beyond the fact that we're snappy dressers and uh, speak fluent sarcasm, what I really like about GCA is I can look around the room and without fail, I can say that every single person in this room is here on purpose and they know why they're here. It's what creates the unity that has kept us going for these past 20 years. I was watching you all this morning because of the way that you came through the door and one by one greeted each other and visited with each other and fellowship with each other. And I'm just very happy to see that kind of camaraderie and fellowship of spirit here at GCA. And the fact that we know why we're here. There's nobody who woke up this morning and just thought, well, it's our tradition to go to church. I guess I'll go to church and sit there and watch whatever happens. 
everybody's here because they want to be fed the word of God. They want to sing to God. They want to worship and praise God. And they want to be among the saints. And that is just really, really commendable. We are in Revelation chapter 3 this morning. We are going to begin at verse 14, and we are going to finish this chapter this morning, which means that we will finish talking about the seven churches of Asia. And we'll start getting into chapter 4 next week, which begins the prophetic eschatological section of the book of Revelation. But this morning we have to talk about the church at Laodicea. And I'm going to give you some background and history and detail about the city of Laodicea because the more you know about Laodicea, the more you're going to understand the words that Jesus chose to use to the church at Laodicea. The first characteristic thing you're going to notice about Jesus' words to the church at Laodicea is that unlike Smyrna and Philadelphia, where Jesus said nothing bad to them, when speaking to Laodicea, Jesus has nothing good to say about them. So they are referred to as the lukewarm church. Those are Jesus' words, that they are a lukewarm church. And as we look at the details, what we're going to see is that they were a wealthy, indifferent church. It would be really, really easy to make modern application of that idea. A church that thinks it's fine and it's secure because of its wealth, but is actually grown kind of indifferent to the things of God. They're just doing church. They're just doing it by rote. They're just going through the motions. So the wealthy, indifferent church is a type of church that has always existed as long as there have been churches, but based on what Jesus is about to say to them, I would advise if you're part of a wealthy and different church, and it would be real easy to point at some, but if you're part of one, think about what you're doing. The name Laodicea means rule of the people. If we were just to translate it, you've heard me before talk about the Nicolaitans, and I've told you that the word laos means the people, conquering people, so Laodicea is rule of the people. Laodicea is one of three cities, a triad of cities along with Colossae and Hierapolis. And when we were looking at the book of Colossians, we talked about how close Colossae was to Laodicea. And Laodicea is the southernmost of the seven churches of Asia. It's located at the junction of several really important trade routes. But it's 48 miles from Philadelphia. It's 96 miles from Ephesus, which means if you made a round trip to all the seven churches, that would be about 325 miles. Laodicea was founded in the 3rd century B.C., it was originally named Diospolis, which means the city of Jupiter. Then for a little while it was called Roaz, and then it was given the name Laodicea by King Antiochus II, who reigned from 261 to 246 B.C. 
he named this city and several other cities after his wife, Laodicea. And that's where the name Laodicea comes from. There were several Laodiceas. She was so impressed with her husband's devotion to her, after he named these several cities after her, she murdered him. She poisoned him. This is the same Antiochus, by the way, for any of you who have listened to our previous eschatology series when we went into the details in the book of Daniel and we talked about leagues that were made between the northern and the southern kingdom. We talked about the Ptolemaic king, Philadelphus, who was the king of Egypt at the time, who made a pact of marriage. You read about it in Daniel 11.6. Well, this is that Antiochus that we're talking about. The city is located about a mile south of the Lycus River in the Lycus Valley, west of Colossae and south of Hierapolis. And it was distinguished from six other cities that were also named Laodicea by the fact that it was in the Lycus Valley. So it was known as Laodicea on the Lycus. It was located at a junction of two major roads, postal route roads, that led from Ephesus and Pergamos that were running eastward into Syria. The highway entered on the west through what was known as the Ephesian Gate. Now, this is the first indication of what kind of wealth was going on in Laodicea. I'm really going to stress this morning how wealthy Laodicea was because the city itself was fabulously wealthy. The Ephesian gate was a triple gate. It had a series of three gates to it so that enemies could not get through it. It had two high towers in it so that they could see the enemy coming and open or close the gates accordingly. And it was dedicated to Emperor Domitian, who was emperor at the time that John is writing the book of Revelation. To the left of the city on the east, there was also something called the Syrian Gate, which was another of these fabulous gates. And then beyond that east of the city, there was a passway through the mountains that was called the Gate of Phrygia, and Laodicea was the gatekeeper of that pass. So they really had control of anybody who was attempting to travel toward the east through these postal routes. Laodicea, importantly, was mostly populated with Syrians and Jews who had been transported there from Babylon. The city had a big agora, in fact, two of them, a northern one and a central one. And most of those markets were controlled by the Jews. There were about 7,500 Jewish men there and then women and children at the time that this epistle was written. Laodicea was located up on a plateau, and that ensured that it was going to be secure against any kind of enemy attack. And so that location would seem ideal. I mean, if you were going to build a fortified city, the best place to build it is up on a a high plateau, and you've got these gates that are controlling the roads in and out of your city. That would seem like just the perfect location, but they had a big problem which is that they were dependent then on getting water from the neighboring city of Hierapolis, which was six miles to the north. Hierapolis itself had these hot springs 
It was very famous for. People knew about the hot springs that boiled up there in Hierapolis. And then some of that water would be piped via a stone underground aqueduct to Laodicea. And by the way, you can go there to this very day, and you can still see the ruins of Laodicea and the aqueducts. The Romans were very good at building aqueducts. Among the Roman ruins that you find over there, you find lots of aqueducts. So there was this aqueduct that brought water from Hierapolis, but it was warm water to begin with, and then it was piped all the way to Laodicea. And by the time the water actually arrived in Laodicea, it was insipid. It was tepid. And it was no good for drinking. In fact, if you drank it, it would make you throw up. That's an important detail based on what Jesus is about to say to the church at Laodicea. Colossae, meanwhile, Hierapolis is known for its hot springs. Where Colossae is sitting, they have all this cool water that comes down from the mountains. And so there is this cool, refreshing water in Colossae. And there is this warm, no good, tepid water there in Laodicea because it's coming from the hot springs, which are actually used for medicinal purposes there in Hierapolis. So you got the layout of the three cities? One has hot water. One has cold water. One has water that's just no good. Laodicea was located, as I mentioned, not only on a a postal route, but it was an important commercial route. So it made it really, really prosperous. In fact, the city became so wealthy and so self-reliant that when it was partially destroyed by an earthquake back in A.D. 61, Rome came in and offered to help them rebuild because it was an important city to Rome. And the people of Laodicea didn't want their help, didn't take their help because they had sufficient funds to just rebuild the city. That's how wealthy they were. A couple of times in the history of Laodicea, you see earthquakes doing big damage, and yet they have the ability to just rebuild, because they're just that wealthy. Due to their exchange of goods, and the fact that there was a large banking community there in Laodicea, But then they also had another trade that they were really well known for, very famous for, which was that they grew a particular type of wool there, a particular type of sheep that were black. And so they were very well known for their black clothing that was made out of black wool. And it was really luxurious wool. So if you wanted to buy luxurious black clothing, Laodicea was the place to go. So you've got these agoras, these markets. You've got the exchange of goods. You've got the fact that it's a banking city. You've got the fact that it's very well protected up on a plateau. It's got the wool trade going for it, so it's becoming very, very well known. But then on top of all that, they also have this innovative medical school. And they have a shrine to the god Maine that is connected to this medical school. 
Laodicea actually became one of the most prominent cities in the Asian province during the Roman period. In fact, that whole area, the province of Asia, that we've been talking about through these seven cities, was actually wealthier and more fluential than any of the other areas of the Roman Empire. And this is where the seven churches existed that Jesus has been writing to. In fact, six of those seven cities that are being written to here are actually judicial centers for Rome. They've set up courts there. They have judges there. They have a very dominant presence there. Well, all except for Thyatira. Thyatira was more of a military outpost. Laodicea was also very well educated. And they produced some very famous first century philosophers. The city itself covered about five square kilometers that were just filled with all these magnificent buildings. And then they also locally mined their own marble, which they had in excess. So these buildings were fabulous marble buildings throughout the whole city. So when you went there, it was a really, really impressive layout. There was, as I mentioned, the central agora. There were bath complexes. There were fountains. There was a nymphaeum. Do you know what a nymphaeum is? A fountain that is particularly dedicated to nymphs because they celebrated so many different gods and goddesses. There were statues of the goddess Isis. There were temples to Apollo, to Artemis, to Aphrodite, as well then as the imperial cult, particularly Domitian. They were very big on worshiping Domitian. There was also a sacred precinct in the north in which there was a northern agora or marketplace. That also had temples and altars to Athena and to Zeus. Are you getting a feel for the amount of idol worship that went on in Laodicea? They had public latrines. They had a gymnasium. They had the largest stadium in Asia Minor which held an estimated 25,000 spectators. And it was built in a U-shape, which allowed it to function also as an amphitheater. That was dedicated to Vespasian in 79 AD. They also used it for Olympic games. They used it for gladiatorial contests. And they used it for arena executions. They had cemeteries. They had two theaters. There was a Western theater that seated 8,000 people. There was a Northern theater that seated 12,000 people. And they had statues to their gods and their goddesses, such as Zeus and Hera and Dionysus and Aphrodite. And even the Emperor Augustus was worshipped there. So you had this combination of all of these mythological gods. You had the Greek gods and the Roman gods mixed in there. And then you also had the cult of Roman dominion and Roman emperors displayed there. That's the city. That's the kind of wealth. That's the kind of religious atmosphere in which Jesus finds this church. Now, this particular church is also really wealthy because it has patronage from the people who live there in Thyatira. And they're very well protected because the city itself is well protected. And they even worshipped 
their city. They were just so proud of their city that they worshiped it. Laodicea was known for its banking system, for its rich black wool that was woven into desirable, very marketable clothing. It was known for its marble. And in fact, it was known as a pleasure resort for the physically strong and the prosperous. And it was known as a health resort for the sick because that very mineral-rich water that came through the aqueduct that was no good for drinking was really good for bathing. A moment ago, I mentioned Asclepius. Anybody here remember Asclepius? We talked about him a couple of weeks ago because he was the god of health and medicine. And they had a temple there that was dedicated to Asclepius. And in fact, it was one of 200 throughout the Greek and Roman world that was dedicated to Asclepius. He was known, by the way, by the phrase, the great physician. Sound familiar? Can you see why Jesus is going to have a problem with that? The school of medicine that was there in Laodicea was particularly known for their specialty, which was ophthalmology. And they specialized in having an eye salve, which was called collyrium, which is mentioned by several different ancient sources who all said that this particular eye salve was made there in Laodicea from a Phrygian stone that was ground to powder And then it was formulated there in Laodicea as this specialty eye salve, which was sold all over the known world. The medical school there was also known throughout the empire, and there were literally thousands of sick people who would journey all the way to Laodicea to be physically benefited by their eye salve and their mineral water and their hot and lukewarm baths. Hang on to all that. Jesus is going to respond to every one of those details. That's how well Jesus knew the city of Laodicea. Now, we're not told who founded the church in the city of Laodicea, but we can infer that it was probably Epaphras. In Colossians 1, 6 to 7, why don't you look that up? There is a reference from Paul to the fact that the church in Colossae was formed by Epaphras, who carried the teaching of Paul to the city. And since that is a sister city of Laodicea, we can infer that it was Epaphras who was responsible for the founding of the church there in Laodicea. Colossians 1, 6 and 7, read that for us. Elizabeth, what does your translation say? And this is Colossians 1, 6 and 7? Yeah. Um, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit and is, it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf who has also declared to us your love in the Spirit. A reference to Epaphras who is responsible for apparently founding the church. They're both in Colossae and in Laodicea. The Apostle Paul actually makes at least four references to Laodicea in his epistle to the Colossians. You want to see it real quick, or do you just remember it from the teaching back 
when we were teaching through the book of Colossians. Steve, if you would, look up Colossians 2.1. Micah, if you would, look up Colossians 4.13. Shane, you want to read something? Sure. Look up Colossians 4, and you're going to read 15 and 16, which has two references in it to the city of Laodicea. Steve's going to go first. He's going to read Colossians 2.1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So Paul had never actually been to Laodicea, and yet the church there existed, which is why we infer that it was because of Epaphras who brought the gospel to that area of Asia Minor. Colossians 4.13, Micah, if you'd read that. For I testify for him, referencing Epaphras, for I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So there all three cities of that triad of cities are mentioned, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. And here Paul is testifying to the great affection that Epaphras has for all three of those churches. So again, indications the, the church was founded there by Epaphras himself. Colossians 4, 15 and 16, if you would, Shane. Greet the brethren who, who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So there are four references in the book of Colossians to Laodicea, and we get a pretty good idea about the founding of the church there in Laodicea based on what Paul has said to the Colossian church. And we can infer from all that that Epaphras was essential in establishing that church. The church in Laodicea survived through Domitian's reign. Laodicea remained an important city right up until about the 7th century AD when it was struck by yet another devastating earthquake and then subsequently abandoned. And that local church was no more. And to this day, because it is Turkey, there's not really any Christian church to be found in that vicinity. So here's what I want you to hang on to. Hang on to the fact that Laodicea is known for its rich black clothing and rich black wool, that it's known for its wealth, and that it's known for its ISAV. And now, with that introduction out of the way, we can actually read. We will read through the letter from top to bottom and then go back and look at the details, starting at Revelation 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold, and I would that you were hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and not hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me 
gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and eye salve to anoint your eyes, so that you might see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just like we saw last week, Jesus introduces himself in a unique way here. He doesn't reference back to the description of him in chapter 1, which is the way that he introduced himself in the first five of these epistles, the first five of these letters to the first five churches. But here, he starts by saying that he is the amen. That is a word that has been passed down through several languages, even down to the English language, right from the Hebrew without changing. It's very interesting that it has gone through no changes at all. It is an ancient word, amen, that means it is, or verily, or it is established. And Jesus begins by saying, that's me. Now, this is the only place in the Bible where that word, amen, is used as a proper name where Jesus says, I am, amen. That's who I am. He is more than just the embodiment of something like love. He actually is love. He's more than just faithful. He is faith. He is more than just honest and truthful. He is true. Same thing here. He is the one through whom all the promises of God are yea and amen. In other words, all the promises that God made throughout the Old Testament, Jesus came to the planet and is identified as the yes, which means all those promises are good, and he is the amen, which means all these promises verily, verily are exactly this way, and so they're all going to be completed just like God said. But then he is the very embodiment of that and uses it as a proper pronoun for himself and says, I am amen. I am the one who establishes everything. And whatever I say, whatever I determine, that's what happens because I am amen. Beyond that, he is the faithful and the true witness. And really, in some ways, it's argued that this is sort of the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew amen or amen, because he's saying yet again that he is the one who can say what is, what needs to be, what happens. He is the witness, not only of God to men, but of men to God. He is the true testimony. He is the actual revelation. He's the author of the truth, and he's dependable. 
in everything he says. Why does he start there? Why does he begin by saying, I am the amen and I am the faithful witness? Well, it's because this church, being an indifferent church, doesn't really pay all that close attention to what Jesus has to say or what Jesus thinks. So he starts by establishing, I'm the one who has the only words that actually matter. I'm the one who, whatever I say, that's amen. I'm the one who is the true and faithful witness, and if I tell you about God, whatever I say to you, that's the fact. You don't get to argue about it because I'm the faithful and the true witness. If you were going to court and you were going to be a witness, the standard that you were held to was that first you had to be speaking from personal knowledge. You couldn't just be making it up. Secondly, you had to be actually competent to relate what it is you know. You have to be able to express yourself and explain what it is you're saying. And then third, you had to be willing to bear witness to the facts in the case. If you couldn't meet those three standards, you could not be a witness. And Jesus himself said in John 3.11, Verily, verily, I say to you, we speak what we do know, we testify to what we have seen, and you receive not our witness. Jesus actually took all those Greek standards for being a witness and said, I am competent to be the perfect, faithful, true witness to things pertaining to God. And yet, despite that, the Jews would not believe him. And that's why he held them accountable, because he said, I'm the faithful, I'm the true witness, and you don't believe me. That was also the case in Laodicea. He was the faithful and the true witness. He was the amen. He was establishing that right up front because they had grown indifferent to him. Yeah, they had lots of religion. Yes, they were very established. Yes, they had lots of wealth. Yes, they were protected. And yes, they didn't worry about anything else going on in the world. But they also didn't care, apparently, about things like sound doctrine or the teaching of Paul or even dedication to Christ. They were just doing the rote religion and feeling good about themselves. So Jesus says to them, I know your deeds. He says that to just about every church in this list. Through the last several weeks, I have stopped and emphasized, every time we come across that phrase, I have emphasized Jesus saying, I know. I know it all. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're doing. I know your behavior. I know how you're conducting yourself as a church. I know your deeds. And here's what I know about you. You're neither hot nor cold. And I wish that you were cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. Now the NASB cleaned it up and went with, I will spit you out of my mouth. The proper translation of that word would be vomit. I mean, Jesus used a very expressive term. Because you're neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's how indignant he was about the fact that they had become indifferent toward him. But let's talk about that hot or cold thing. Because when people look at it on the face... People think, well, when it comes to zeal, since the word zeal means fire and hot, 
They say, well, Jesus is saying you've grown cold, but I wish you were hot. That's not what he said. He said, I wish you were hot or cold, but you're neither of those. Here, I'll put it this way. People think that love and hate are opposite each other. They're not. Love and hate are both strong emotions. The opposite of both of them is indifference. You don't love a person, you don't hate a person if you've become indifferent to them. That's what Jesus is saying here. And he's comparing them to their two sister cities. Because remember what I've already told you. In Hierapolis, there are hot springs. In Colossae, there's cold water. The cold water is a good refreshment. The hot water is used for hot springs for medicinal purposes. In other words, the water in both the other cities has value, has function, and you have become pointless. You have become indifferent. You've become lukewarm. You're not hot. You're not cold. And Jesus says, I would that you were one or the other. Be refreshing. Be medicinal. Be helpful. Be in some way actively Christian. And you're none of that. And because you claim my name and you claim to be a church dedicated to me, and yet there is nothing about you that is indicative of actually being Christian, and you have grown so comfortable in your wealth that you are now just indifferent, I wish that you were something. Be hot, be cold. But you're neither of those. And so I will vomit you out of my mouth. This is no longer just Jesus saying, I'll remove your candlestick. He's saying, you are repugnant to me. You make me nauseated because you're indifferent. Because you say, verse 17, because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy. And I have need of nothing. See, there it is. Speaking from personal experience, churches that concentrate on becoming wealthy and secure in this world, churches that concentrate on fundraising all the time, churches that concentrate on building larger edifices to themselves so that they can say, look, we're established and we're wealthy and we're secure and we're politically connected and we've got nothing to worry about. As I was saying that, you were all kind of nodding your heads because you can think of how the church world acts like that these days. And you do once you think our money is going to secure us and you think we've got politically connected people in our congregation and once you start thinking that way, well, then you start becoming indifferent to the things of Christ. You're not concentrating on the doctrine, you're not concentrating on the Bible, but you also start thinking, we're fine, we're good, I don't need anything. And what's the one thing that they seem to need that they just don't have? Christ himself. Concentrating on Christ. In fact, when he says, I stand at the door and knock, where is he? It's outside the church. We'll get to that in a moment. So when they say, we're rich, we don't need anything, 
Jesus is pointing out, yeah, you need one thing really bad. And you don't have it. And you make me sick. You say, I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. Here's what you don't know about yourself. You do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's not how they saw themselves. But Jesus is obviously speaking about their spiritual state. Sure, you have all of this physical stuff. Sure, you have all this wealth, you have all this grandeur, you have all this physicality that you think is keeping you safe and preserving you. But the simple fact is, when it comes to your spiritual state, you are wretched and you don't seem to know that. You're miserable and you're poor. Here they are saying, we're rich, we're in need of nothing. And Jesus says, you're just the opposite. You're poor. And remember what I told you about the wool industry there in Laodicea? They specialized in that rich black wool, which they sold throughout the known world. Laodicea was famous for their black clothing. And in fact, it was a source of pride among the people of Laodicea to wear that clothing, that clothing that came right from them, from their community, because it was really luxurious clothing, but it was also black. And Jesus says, you're walking around in all your expensive clothing. You're so proud of your expensive clothing. You don't even know that you're naked. You have no clothing on you because he's talking again about their spiritual state. How many times have we seen Jesus say, you're going to get robes, white robes, At the end of the book of Revelation, it's going to say those white robes are the righteousness of saints. So Jesus is talking about their spiritual state and saying, you don't have righteousness. You don't have the clothing that counts. You don't have what it takes, what is necessary to be accepted in heaven eternally. You are naked spiritually while you're bragging about how well-dressed you are. So here's what you should do. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. They started out by saying, we're rich. And Jesus says, you don't have the kind of wealth that counts. That you get from me. Here's my advice. Come buy from me. And get the gold refined in the fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and so that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And talk about, well, I was going to use the phrase talk about a poke in the eye. And it is kind of a poke in the eye because he says to them, and get eye salve from me. They're famous for their eye salve. The city is well known throughout the region. People come in throngs to get the Laodicean Phrygian Isav. And Jesus says, here's what you need. You need the Isav that only I can produce for you. The one that will cure your blindness. The one that will allow you to see. How often have we seen this as we've studied so many books of the Bible that Jesus talks about spirituality as they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. 
He talks about the fact that human beings need this change of eyes, this change of ears, so that they can see and so that they can hear and so that they can understand. And here, consistent with all of that, Jesus says, what you need is your eyes opened. You need comprehension. You need understanding of who I am because you've become indifferent to me. Therefore, what you really need is the medicine for your eyes that only I can provide. And you're indifferent to me. And I'm the solution. So Jesus told them to come and buy from him. You're probably familiar with Isaiah 55. that begins, Ho, everyone that thirsteth. The NASB translates that word. King James says, Ho. And the NASB says, You, there! Because that's what it is. It's an exclamation to get attention. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3 says, you there, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come buy and eat. That's the kind of buying Jesus is talking about. When he says, you should come and buy from me gold refined in the fire, he is the source for the faith tried in the fire that he is referring to. And so he says, you don't have to have money, but you can come and buy, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? Why do you spend your wages for that which does not satisfy? And now he's going to clear up, Isaiah is going to clear up the language that he's using to make it very plain. He says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good. So now he's talking about his language, his words. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. So much of his word, absorbing so much of his word, you can be satisfied in him, in his word for the whole rest of your life. And there's never a cutoff point. He doesn't ever say, you've had enough now. In abundance, you can keep feeding on his word for no money, for no cost. Verse 3 makes it clear, incline your ear and come to me, listen so that you might live. So when Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, buy from me, he's using that same kind of language that Isaiah has already laid out. He's not saying you're wealthy, therefore you can afford stuff from me. He's saying you're wealthy, but the stuff you would buy with your wealth doesn't benefit you spiritually. What you need is what I have, and I will give it to you if you just come to me for it. So come and acquire it from me. This kind of buying is tantamount to hearing Christ and then listening intently to what he says. And as I mentioned, gold refined in the fire it's a pretty obvious reference to faith that is tried in the fire. I'll make you spiritually rich. I'll give you a couple examples of that. Zechariah 13.9 says, I will bring the third part through the fire and I will refine them as silver is refined and I will test them as gold is tested and they will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So all the way back in Zechariah, we see this equation of being tried by fire to refine them like silver or gold, and this testing will result in people 
calling on the name of the Lord. That idea is picked up in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, which says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which perishes, though tried by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there is already a foundation for this language that Jesus is using when he says, buy from me gold. We can see that he is saying, buy from me this faith that is tried in the fire. Go through the testing that is necessary to result in faith in Christ. And where do you get that? He says you get that from him. So whatever it is, the righteous covering for your spiritual nakedness, the eye salve that would allow you to actually see spiritual things, or even the faith that results in righteousness in the heavenly economy, all of those things, Jesus says, you got to come to me for them. I'm the faithful and the true witness. I'm the provider And you've become indifferent to me. And yet I'm the one who can solve your spiritual dilemma. And your spiritual dilemma starts with the fact that you're really wealthy. And so you don't think you need me. And I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Also, by the way, in saying I can open your eyes by ISAF from me, He is proving that he is the true great physician because the medical school of Asclepius might be able to improve your physical vision in some minor way and then they gave him the title of the great physician and yet Jesus is saying, I can heal your spiritual eternal problems. That makes me the actual true great physician. I think the fact that he brought up the eye salve thing, this is why earlier I said it's like a poke in the eye. He's poking Asclepius in the eye. He's saying, you claim to be such a healer. I'm the actual healer. I'm the true healer. Your school brings about eye salve. I have the real eye salve. So Jesus, once again, is establishing himself as the true healer, but also the true witness, also the amen, also the one who is honest and true and trustworthy in all circumstances. And in so doing, he is making all that variety of Greek and Roman gods and goddesses that are there in Laodicea. He is laying waste to them. He is proving that they are nothing and that he himself is the key to eternal life. So then he says, since they might sort of recoil at those words, Since he has just told them, you're you're nothing. You're blind. You're wretched. Since he has pointed out their depravity to them. Since he has said, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. You know that they, the indifferent church, wouldn't like that language. They still don't to this very day. The indifferent church, they just like Jesus to be meek and mild Jesus walking around with a lamb on his shoulders. And they don't, they don't like the Jesus who is a judge. They don't like the Jesus who is coming back in vengeance. They don't like the Jesus who can actually say, I save this one by my electing grace. 
and others I am going to leave in their sinfulness. They don't like any of that because they are indifferent. And so naturally, when Jesus says these things, when they get this letter and they read this letter and they see that kind of language, they're going to recoil at that. And so Jesus says in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. That's astounding. Because let's be honest, if it was me, if it was Tom, if it was Steve, if it was Steve the sequel, if it was Shane, if it was Elizabeth, if it was any of us, and we were dealing with this kind of indifferent church, there's no way we'd say, and I love you. There's, we'd say, I'm done with you. No, finished. But Jesus takes the time to reprove them and correct them after establishing that he is the truth and the only truth and the genuine witness and he is the amen and therefore what he says about them is true and you are blind and you are naked and you are making me nauseated. And any of us would say I'm done with you and yet Jesus takes the time to say now I'm reproving you, I'm correcting you but who I love I do correct. I do reprove. What astounding grace. Amazing. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Therefore, be zealous, which by the way, I told you before, the root of the word zealous is heat. And they are lukewarm. And he says, I wish you were hot or cold. So he's saying, heat up and repent, change, change the way you are. And the fact that he would say to them, repent, implies that it's not too late. Despite the fact of their spiritual blindness and indifference and nakedness and sickliness, he still says, those who I love, I reprove, I correct them, I discipline them, and therefore heat up and change. Repent of the way you're being. And then this phrase, oh my goodness, I think we're all familiar with this phrase because we have seen the posters and the t-shirts and the lampshades and all the other products that have been made with Jesus standing at the door of your heart poor Jesus outside your knocking and you have to open the door of your heart in order to let him in and then he'll come in and be with you how often have you heard that that's not what Jesus is saying behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and I will dine with him and he will dine with me First thing you need to know to understand what Jesus is saying there, knocking on the door in the Middle East 2,000 years ago was actually a form of importunity. It was actually interruptive. It was very sudden. People didn't just knock on other people's doors. What they did was they would call out to other people. And we see that throughout the Bible. I'm going to show you several references to it that what people would do is call to each other. When I used to live in California, 
I lived in an apartment in Glendale. The apartment next to me was populated with Middle Eastern folks. It was owned by Middle Eastern folks. And all day, every day, as poor baby Jimmy was laying in his crib and trying to sleep in the room that faced that building, all day and night, they would go out on their balconies or open their kitchen windows, and instead of using their telephones, they would call to each other. And I heard that all day, all day, and then finally he'd answer back and that then they'd get together but there was calling because that was the tradition the Middle Eastern tradition it was not to knock because that was as I said importunity that was rude Matthew eleven sixteen, Jesus says whereunto will I liken this generation it's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling unto their fellows When he said that, it's because that was the Middle Eastern custom, to call out to each other. Mark 3, 31 and 32 says, There came then his brethren and his mother, this is Jesus' mother and brethren, and they were standing outside, and they sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him and said, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren seek for thee. Because that was the standard tradition. They weren't knocking at the door. They were standing outside the door calling. Or Acts 10, 17 and 18. This is Peter. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision would mean when he was shown all these unclean foods, he was wondering what that would mean after he had seen it. And behold, the two men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house, and they stood outside the gate, and they called, and they asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. This, again, was just the tradition of the time, and it's written into the Bible. It's just this little detail that's just accurate to the time and place, and I think we read by it sometimes, and until it's Coalated so that we can see it, we, we don't quite understand it because we're used to knocking on doors. We're used to ringing doorbells. But that's not how it was done in the Middle East. That was a sudden interruption. Now here's Jesus, who is clearly outside the church at Laodicea because the church of Laodicea has become indifferent toward him. And he says, I stand at the door And I knock. Now, what was he saying by that? What was the point of that? Well, Luke 12. Luke 12, I'm going to read verses 35 to 40. This is where Jesus adjures his listeners and says, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or the third watch and find them doing so, blessed are those servants. But know this. 
that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was going to come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you don't expect. What's the context? What's the point? What's the meaning? The context is suddenness. The master's going to show up suddenly in the middle of the night. And if any servant is awake and paying attention, when he hears that knock at the door, he's going to know that's the master. He's going to open the door because he's awake, he's alert, he's paying attention. And Jesus likens that parable to the idea of his return in judgment at the end of the world and then says it's like a thief in the night, which we talked about before. Micah, if he knew what time the thief was coming, was not going to allow the thief to break in or take his truck. And so that was the example that we used previously. Jesus uses it here in the context of knocking. Does this give you some idea what knocking means? Because what Jesus is actually doing here is that he's saying, the time of my appearance is going to be sudden. Just like the jarring, unexpected knocking in the middle of the night, just like the thief breaking in in the middle of the night, that's going to be me. I'm going to come back at a time when you're not expecting, and I'm going to knock, and that is sudden. That's sharp. That's importune. It's like a thief breaking in. In Revelation 3.11, Jesus said, Behold, I come suddenly. In Revelation 3.3, he said, I'm coming like a thief. In Revelation 2.16, he said he's coming back suddenly to make war with the sword out of his mouth. Or he's coming to remove your lampstand in Revelation 2.5. So there is this consistent pattern where at the end of these letters, Jesus says some type of, I'm coming suddenly, therefore pay attention and repent. And that's exactly what he's doing when he says, I stand at the door and I knock. I'm right here. It's all of a sudden. I'm right outside. I'm ready to judge you. You better repent. You better get some zeal. You better heat up because I'm right here on the precipice. And any time now, I could knock at that door. And that's going to be sudden. Just like a thief in the night. Just like the sword. Just like all the other examples that I have given of my sudden arrival in judgment. See what Jesus is saying? The good news is, the gracious news, the amazing news, is that in verse 21 he says, well, in the second half of verse 20 he says, anyone who hears my voice and opens the door, just like those servants that were awake in the middle of the night when the master would come back from the wedding, if anyone opens the door and hears my voice, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. It's just like what he said previously. If, if the servants are watching, the next thing they're going to do is sit and eat. This kind of table fellowship to this very day holds a great deal of importance that we here in America just don't feel. Because here in America, our idea of fine dining is whenever we're not standing over the sink or driving through McDonald's. But eating in many especially Eastern cultures, is an important part of the day, but it's also an important part of fellowship. If you are with a friend or if you're entertaining a stranger, 
an important part of that is having that moment of table fellowship. Jesus is saying the same thing. Anyone who hears my voice before I'm doling out this judgment, anyone who hears my voice and has me in, then I'm going to sit down with him and I'm going to imbibe food with him as a show of fellowship, as a show of oneness together. And he that overcomes, verse 21, astounding grace, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. How? How do you go from you make me want to vomit to I will share my eternal throne with you? How do you make that transition? How do you get from I'm naked and blind and sick even though I'm full of myself and my own riches and I don't think I need anything and I'm completely indifferent to Christ. How do you get from that state all the way to the state of Jesus saying, I will share my eternal throne with you? The answer is in the middle. Jesus saying, come to me and buy. Come to me, I'm the answer. Come to me and I'll give you that white clothing of righteousness. Come to me and I will satisfy everything that is necessary to get you from your nauseating state, which, by the way, every single one of us in our natural depraved state comes across as pretty nauseating to God. How do we get from our nauseating state all the way to Jesus inviting us to be joint heirs with everything that he owns? The answer is Jesus. The answer is coming to him to buy, coming to him for that righteousness, for that forgiveness, for that faith tried in the fire. The answer is Jesus. He's the one who is going to reprove us. He's the one that's going to correct us. He's the one that's going to redirect us. Why? Because he loves us. The answer is him. The answer can't be us. How often have you heard me say, the solution to your problem can't be you. You, you are your problem. So you can't be your solution. The answer to your eternal problems is Christ himself. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. And then this astounding statement, as I also overcame and sat down with my father. What did Jesus overcome? The sin, the decay, the depravity of this world, the temptations of the devil, the hatred of human beings who mocked him and beat him and scourged him and nailed him to a chunk of wood. He, in the Garden of Gethsemane, even said out loud to his father, if it were possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. He's the overcomer. He's an astounding overcomer. He's the one who left his throne in heaven and took on human flesh to be with us and to be like us so that he could be a faithful high priest to us because he can understand our problems. He can relate to what it's like to be flesh and blood and to have pain and be hungry and be tired. 
So he is the ultimate overcomer, and as a result of his overcoming, he now sits at the right hand of his father on his father's throne. He uses that, creates an equation, and says, and if you overcome, I'll grant you to sit with me on my throne. So what does that mean? What does that mean particularly to an indifferent church? He says, repent, be zealous, change your ways, and then endure. That's why one of the five points is perseverance. That we persevere in the faith. We persevere in this lifetime. We persevere through the trials and the struggles of this world. And we do all of that persevering through faith in Christ. And he provides for us these white robes of righteousness. He provides for us that faith that he's trying in this fire. And if we persevere through the trials and through the fire, there's this great reward waiting for us. How many great rewards have we seen through these letters to the seven churches? A white stone with a new name written on it. I'm going to grant you to sit on my throne. I'm going to give you a victor's crown. You're going to be robed in white robes that I'm going to give you, which is the righteousness of the saints. There are these unbelievable spiritual eternal rewards waiting for us in heaven. That's why Paul said, there is now therefore this crown of righteousness laid up for me in heaven. What's the solution? How do we get there? How do we endure? How do we get through it? How do we overcome? Through his strength, through looking to him, through imbibing, through eating his word, through trusting him, through the constancy of faith in him, and by not becoming indifferent. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.